because it's so delightful, because it's so engaging, because it has such richness and depth, it draws us in to uh, stretch out and exercise the elements of our person that then uh, become receptive to you know, the, the much greater depth of scripture, for instance. Well, hey everyone, what is up? Welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Austin and this is Gospel Simplicity, a place where we seek to bring simplicity out of theological and historical complexity. And we also just sometimes have a little fun with our interviews, which is what we're doing today. Today I am interviewing Father Andrew Stephen Damick about the Lord of the Rings. He is a return guest to the show. If you know him, he is a prolific author, podcaster, Orthodox priest who's just creating great content out there that you should definitely check out. And one of the things he's really passionate about happens to be Lord of the Rings. He runs a great podcast called Amon Sul, and he is in deep to the Tolkien legendarium and all things mythology, Tolkien, etc. We had a super fun conversation. It was sparked by the Amazon Prime release of uh, The Rings of Power, but that is only a small fraction of the conversation. We talk about Tolkien's influences. We talk about how to read Tolkien well, how it helps us read scripture, why so many people are drawn to it, his favorite character, and so much more. So if you love The Lord of the Rings, if you love Father Andrew Stephen Damick, if you're just interested in what's going on in the intersection of Christianity and culture and how we can do that well, I think this interview is for you. And this interview is made possible by my patrons. In fact, one of the questions in the interview came from my patrons because they have access to the Gospel Simplicity patron-only Discord server where you can give ideas, feedback, talk with other theology nerds, and just have a good time. And so one of those questions came from there. So if you want to recommend questions, if you want to interact with other people from Gospel Simplicity, go to patreon.com slash gospel simplicity. You'll get all types of fun perks like the Gospel Simplicity Discord server, access to the Gospel Simplicity Book Club Inside Circle where we're going through right now, St. Maximus the Confessor. You can read great Christian texts along with other people, and you get all types of other things. So that's patreon.com slash gospel simplicity. Well, today I am joined by Father Andrew Stephen Damick for a second time on the channel. The very reverend archpriest Andrew Stephen Damick is chief content officer of Ancient Faith Ministries, the former pastor of St. Paul Antiochian Orthodox Church of Emmaus, Pennsylvania, and the author of Arise, O God, Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy, An Introduction to God and Bearing God, all from Ancient Faith Publishing. He's also the host of a number of podcasts, so many that it would be hard to list them all, but the most <laughs> important for today being Amon Sul, a podcast exploring the works of J.R.R. Tolkien through the lens of patristic theology and mythology. Along these lines, he will be offering a course at St. Athanasius College during the fall of 2022 on Christ, myth, and Tolkien, reading the Tolkien legendarium through ancient biblical Christianity. I'll have links to all of this in the description down below. But Father Andrew Stephen Damick, thank you so much for being here again on the channel. One of the few people that I've had on twice, so I'm so glad to have you again. My pleasure, and I am honored. Wonderful. Well, today we're having a really fun episode, and people might have noticed from the bio that we were highlighting some things about your work on Tolkien, and we are going to be talking about that today. A bit different, perhaps, than our last conversation on the Orthodox view of non-Orthodox Christians, but somehow I'm sure we're going to be talking about some Orthodox theology in here as well. So, to start off, what sparked your interest in Tolkien? Well, uh, I've been reading for Tolkien for about 40 years now, so... Uh, trying to remember when I was about six or seven years old and that began is a little tough. I do think that probably my very first encounter with Tolkien was through the old 1970s Rankin-Bass cartoon version of The Hobbit. And um, I read The Hobbit probably shortly thereafter. And in fact, my first copy of The Hobbit was an illustrated copy that was illustrated with stills from that movie. And uh, which my dad actually dug out of a uh, a box hidden somewhere in his attic a few years back and sent it to me. And, stra and strangely enough, all of the pages were there, even though the binding had completely fallen to pieces. So, um, yeah, Tolkien's been with me my whole life, pretty much. That's awesome. And, you know, that's the uh, that copy of it predates me, but it, it segues well <laughs> into where I want to go with this of kind of, I mean, Tolkien, the, the books have expanded into so much more. The, there's the films, and now most recently, which is somewhat the occasion for this interview, just because it's going to be a conversation that's going on, is the Amazon Prime series Rings of Power, which I think is marked as the most expensive TV show ever made at this point, which is incredible. So have you seen it? Do you have an opinion on it? 
Yeah, so I watched the first two episodes, which just released a few days ago from when we're recording this interview. And um, I liked what I saw. Um, it's still very much, well, we'll see. You know, that's how I feel about the, the series so far. Um, they did a couple things I was not really enthused about. Um, but altogether, I, I think it, it looks like it's going in a good direction. Um, I think a lot of the very um, exercise prejudicial reactions <laughs> that have been flying around for a few months now are probably not going to pan out to be based on anything at all. Um, and uh, and then hopefully, you know, we can, the long-term Tolkien lovers can get to the business of of looking at it in view of the actual written legendarium and not in view of whatever our current political excitement happens to be about. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a fan yet, um, but, uh, you know, we're only two episodes in, so there's a long ways to go. They're saying five seasons so you know really? we've seen two hours that means there's 48 more hours to come <laughs> so that's, see that's what a happens. lot of hours to come that's incredible yeah i have to say you know you're certainly in much deeper into this world than i am which is why you're here to be interviewed i eliza and i my wife and i just watched the first two episodes this weekend and i i was pleasantly surprised i don't know if that's an indicator of how good it was or how bad I expected it to be. Um, I was fully ready for them to like Game of Thronesify it and it be nothing but kind of just violence and sex and just way overdo it. Um, but I felt like they kept some of the magic there. And I mean, the, certainly a huge budget TV show. But like you said, we're two episodes and so it'll be interesting to see where they go there. So I want to kind of maybe pull back a step here. Now, obviously, I, I love doing interviews and I love Lord of the Rings. So this is just fun for me in general. And I think a lot of my listeners are going to have that opinion too, but I can imagine some people, and I'm curious maybe from your perspective of your work at Ancient Faith Radio, part of your job is to create content, right? And so I would think at some point you had to pitch the idea that I'm going to do a podcast on Lord of the Rings. And this is a good thing, not just for fun, but it's actually a good thing for Ancient Faith Radio, this orthodox content house probably the largest one in america that at least i know of um how how did that go and what do you say to people who ask like what is like why should we as christians or why should you as a priest and content officer at ancient faith radio be spending time thinking about tolkien or thinking about lord of the rings or even that type of literature how do you respond to questions like that yeah I mean, when I first devised the idea, I was a little trepidatious and didn't know how it would be received. In fact, um, I started doing the Amundsen podcast about a year and a half before I actually got hired by Ancient Faith. So I was still a kind of independent content contributor, as most of our contributors are. Um, and I thought, well, I don't know what they're going to say. They'll be like, what, what's the, you know, yeah, it's nice that you like this stuff, but is that really edifying, whatever? But actually, the response I got was, this sounds great. When do we start? Um, which says a lot about the ancient faith leadership, I think. Um, you know, especially when when particularly Orthodox people ask me this question, like, why is this valuable? Why should we spend our time and resources on it? But when any Christian in general asks me the question, I often will point them to a text written by St. Basil the Great um, in the fourth century in which he talks to uh, young men. So he's speaking as a teacher. Uh, about the reading of pagan literature, right? And he talks about uh, the value of that, right? Now, it's interesting. I, I, I bring this up to people because he's not just talking about fictional works by a Christian author like Tolkien, who is, you know, was a very devout Christian for most of his life, right? And, and very explicitly said at some points that he was uh, that Christianity informed and was the basis for his whole legendarium in, in a lot of ways, although not an apologist, not a preacher. But, you know, Basil is talking about the stories that belong to pagan religion, which in, in the fourth century is still somewhat of a live concern for the Christian church. You know, there are still pagans around, although not as many by the time of Basil's life. Um, and, and paganism is what a lot of Christians had turned away from. And if you read the scriptures, paganism is what a lot of the, the, you know, the events in the scripture are our response to, right? So this is, in many ways, this is the religious enemy. This is the religious enemy of the Christian church. Um, but St. Basil doesn't say, well, you know, this is all 
all demonic occultic garbage and you should not look at it and it's not good for Christians and you know just read the Bible just read the church fathers just read the saints lives he does not say that in fact he actually says something pretty shocking which is you need to master this literature before you're ready to read the Bible uh, which now I don't say that to anybody and I wouldn't say that to anybody especially because we just live at a different period in history um, with a lot of Christianity behind us, you know, a lot of Christian history behind us. So for Basil, you know, pagan literature, so he's he's thinking about Homer and Hesiod and, and you know, the classical uh, pagan literature. Uh, this is what forms the basis in many ways of the educational system of the period, right? And he was an extremely educated guy. And what he says about this literature is that you need to learn how to sift it and to discern what's good and what's bad. And he says, when you see something virtuous, listen to that. If you see something unvirtuous, he says, be deaf to that. Now, that doesn't mean don't read it, don't listen to it, because obviously he's saying you should read this stuff. He's saying, don't take it into your heart. Don't, don't become obedient to, to this sort of thing. And so I think that if, if St. Basil can actually show the virtuous, um, the, the virtues that are possible from seeing in, in, even in pagan literature, once again, opposed to Christianity, right? Then, then we can look at the works of a Christian author who is actually, you know, very sympathetic to us in terms of our faith because he himself is a devoted Christian and ask what is the value there, right? So this is something that Christians have always done. Um, this, is, this is part of what it means for Christianity to, to baptize cultures and to form their own culture, right? So this is the work of, of a Christian making culture himself. This video is brought to you in part by Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is an organization of Christian counselors that exists to help you get the help you need. You can find them by going to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. And when you use that link, which you can find in the description down below, you will get 10% off your first month and they'll pair you up with a licensed mental health counselor in under 48 hours. Once you've been paired up with a counselor, you can reach them via instant message, phone call, video call, and more. I think you will really enjoy this, and I think it could be the first step on your journey to greater mental health. And mental health problems affect all of us, religious, non-religious, old, young, every demographic feels the weight of mental health. But there are resources available, and you don't need to go through this alone, which is why I encourage you to reach out to the amazing people at Faithful Counseling by using that link, faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity, and taking your first step towards healing and wholeness in your mental health. Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating angle. I love the incorporation of St. Basil there. And I think that you tap into something really important that there's a distinctly Christian element of being able to kind of baptize the culture like you talked about there and be able to sift kind of virtue from vice and, and literature. And I think perhaps it's almost an anonym, anonym, anomaly. Wow. That's a hard word to say, apparently, at 9 a.m. on a holiday. Uh, but <laughs> that we have in the U.S., and specifically kind of the U.S. brand of fundamentalism or evangelicalism that has shaped a lot of U.S. Christianity, that had this pushback from kind of all types of anything secular, right, or anything that had magic in it, that it's bad. But I think in a lot of Christianity, and we see a renaissance of this in part today, of people going back to kind of a classical education of how can we get young people reading great works of kind of liberal arts. And um, I see that in kind of homeschool movements that I imagine are touching orthodox circles as well. I know a lot of people in Catholic circles that are very big into that kind of thing. But I, I love that perspective of if, if St. Basil can say that about pagan works of literature, I mean, Tolkien's pretty far from that, right? Um, and so I don't know if that's been any of your experience, if you think that has kind of tainted it, that touch of magic that is somehow fearful for some people. I know that was a big conversation with the Harry Potter books when they were first out that, you know, should kids be reading Harry Potter because there's magic in it and magic must be bad. And I think in some ways it kind of stunts our imagination in certain ways. Um, and I think there's this other element that I want to segue into here that we also have this cultural element kind of separate perhaps from the Christian fundamentalism there of just we outgrow stories like this. You know, at some point we're supposed to be these adults that read nonfiction books about business or whatever it is we're supposed to do with our time instead of reading <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Um, but what do you think we lose when we adopt mindsets like that? Either that, 
these elements of magic or things like that are bad from a religious standpoint or simply that they're childish what are, what are we losing as people and as christians in that yeah i i think we're losing a whole element of what reality actually is right so uh, Christian culture, as it's been created over the many centuries, has always included elements that a modern person would regard as supernatural, right? Uh, you know, medieval people and, and the, the pre-medieval pe- people, Christians writing literature, and in many cases they were writing stories, right, that they self-consciously knew were fiction. They included elements of angels and demons and and miracles and all this kind of stuff is absolutely normal in all of this literature it's everywhere right it's absolutely normal and so for a christian to say well we're not going to do that anymore is to cut himself off from his own history right um but it's also to cut himself off from as you said this limits the imagination which is not just an imagination for a christian when you set aside this question of sort of of evil fantasies you know that are very destructive to the human soul and think about imagination as sort of our creative faculty, right? Imagination for the Christian includes conceiving of and getting in touch with the unseen world, right? And so traditional stories in Christian culture have always focused on that, have always included that. It is in pagan literature too, but that's because all these people are simply experiencing a world in which the unseen actually exists and interacts with human beings. Right. So the reason why there is this cultural idea now that this is something you kind of outgrow is because the culture has very sort of unselfconsciously swallowed the idea of materialism, which is, you know, only the things you can you can conceive, you know, uh, perceive with the five senses or observe with a microscope or a telescope or some kind of scope. Uh, those are the things that are real and everything else is just imaginary. It's just made up, right? You know, you need to outgrow belief in fairies and demons and sprites and so forth. And, um, you know, for a Christian, that's ridiculous because, uh, you know, all Christians respect scripture, you know, even if we interpret it different ways. And there's no way to get around the fact that scripture talks about unseen beings, Right, that there is that there is this reality, this spiritual reality that is beyond the perception of our physical senses, right? Um, so for a Christian, that's unconscionable. But even even outside of the the Christian conception of the the cos- of cosmology, there's now I'm not an expert in this, but it's my understanding that a lot of scientists who are kind of working on the edge of things like, you know, quantum mechanics and string theory and this kind of stuff I've heard about and read a little bit about. I don't know much about it. Are saying okay, actually, there seem to be forces at work in the universe that we see their effects, but we don't know what they are. We can't observe them. We don't know what's going on here, but there's something happening, right? Are they seeing angels and demons? I have no idea exactly what it is that they're seeing. But um, but I, I think that most people outside of this super sort of hardcore atheist materialist point of view, which is not a lot of people. I mean, there's there, there are people who actually do see things that way. Uh, but most people outside of that do have a sense that there is unseen reality, right? And I'll just give one very simple example, which I think most people can 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 agree on, is the idea of a purpose, right? There's a, a purpose. What is a purpose? A purpose is actually a kind of engine that drives a lot of things, and yet you can't see it, you can't taste it, you can't smell it, you can't draw a picture of it, and yet it actually is real, right? Purpose is real, and and it functions within human beings. Now, someone could just explain that as a piece of psychology but nonetheless it is an unseen reality that is a major driver a major factor in how things happen in the world how things happen in our individual lives so so yeah i i think we lose when when we when we have this idea that we outgrow fairy tales we we lose the ability to actually perceive what is real in its fullness I think that's a fascinating way of looking at it. And I imagine that's going to tie into this question that I think you set up earlier by talking about St. Basil and how he talked about reading pagan literature as helping you read the Bible. And I think in what you're doing in Amen Sul is helping people read the Bible better as well. It's not just an exercise in kind of a hobby, which if it was, I think that's a great thing in and of itself, but I think it's doing more as well. And so is it primarily the sense that reading something like Tolkien or Tolkien specifically helps us 
reconnect with the fact that there are unseen forces in the at work in the world um, or maybe even reinforcing some type of like a Sacramento worldview where things can have power there um, is that what makes reading Tolkien or can make reading Tolkien help us be better readers of the Bible or what ways do you think those two ideas connect that as you become more in touch with reading something like Tolkien done intentionally you can read the Bible better how would you make those connections for someone yeah, I, I definitely believe that Tolkien's works help to shape the imagination, to make us more receptive to what the scripture is saying. Uh, I, I often describe it as developing a taste for it, right? So, so uh, you know, I, I, amongst people that I know in, in person, I very famously do not like beer. And always someone putting is putting a beer in front of me and saying, oh, this is the one that will, will change, you know, your, your mind about this. And... I, my response usually is, this tastes like beer. And, and that's because I haven't spent the time to really sort of get to know all the flavors of beer and develop a taste for it so that I can then appreciate the variety that, that exists. Um, you know, we all function this way in one way or another. Like think of a, of a genre of music you don't like. Often people say that all sounds the same. Whereas people who are really into it are like, what are you talking about? That, that doesn't all sound the same. Or even like sports, you know, you watch a football game. They all look the same. They're all doing the same thing. And yet people can, who are really into football can say, no, no, this happened at this point, and this happened, and this happened, right? And I think that one of the things that Lord of the Rings and, and uh, Tolkien's other works does is because it's so delightful, because it's so engaging, because it has such richness and depth, it draws us in to... Uh, stretch out and exercise the elements of our person that then uh, become receptive to, you know, the the much greater depth of Scripture, for instance. So, so that is a major, major element of it. I, there is also, of course, you know, you can find thematic elements of Tolkien's works. Like, for instance, there are several messianic figures, uh, uh, lots of, you know, good and evil, the temptations of power, the, you know, all of this kind of stuff that's that's in there that I think makes for uh, a lot of good discussions uh, about the works. And, and it is actually what most Christian books about Tolkien are kind of focused on. And it's good. But I think there's actually something much deeper and more per pervasive about it that is much is even more profoundly powerful than, than those kinds of readings. I think that's really interesting. And you touched on something there that... I love about Lord of the Rings personally, and this isn't, you know, a dig per se at other Christian attempts at literature, but while there are those themes and you can see those, you know, Christian themes or even, you know, quasi-messianic figures, it's not a simple allegory. And I think some people approach Lord of the Rings with that expectation. Maybe they read like the Chronicles of Narnia and they're like, okay, so Aslan maps to this. And then so within Lord of the Rings, like who is who? But I, I think Tolkien goes for something a bit more subtle, and I'd be curious to get your perspective on that as well, that it seems that today we have this perspective of, like, what does it mean for literature to be Christian, right? To, to make it a Christian fiction book, we have to either have it be like a historical fiction of some period where there's a gap or something, or we have to have this, you know, Jesus figure who's just portrayed slightly differently, or it's this near-death experience that's fictional. But I don't see as much subtlety. Perhaps you're more aware of it. Maybe there's great books, and if there are, I'd love to read them. But what's your take on what Tolkien is doing in The Lord of the Rings? As it's inspired by his Christian faith, he's certainly a deeply, uh, deeply faithful Christian, right? That's a very important thing to him. But he's also not making an allegory or just a simple allegory. He's not kind of beating you over the head with this is a Christian book. Why do you think that's important? How do you think that works on readers? Um, I'd love to just get your perspective on that. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, Tolkien at one point in one of his letters says that the initial writing is um, unconsciously Christian and, you know, religious and Catholic, right, is, is the phrase that he uses. Uh, unconsciously at first, but then consciously in the revision. So he's actually has his, his faith in mind when he's making changes later on. Um, he doesn't really map out for us exactly what what that looks like in the granular, you know, he doesn't say, and in this place I did this to make it more like this. You know, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. So we can only guess, right? But I think what work makes um, the Tolkien Legendarium work as being Christian is that it's not trying to be Christian. And, and by that, I mean, uh, 
you know, you talked about earlier this idea that there's a secular space and then a kind of a Christian space. This was big, especially I remember in evangelical culture in the 1980s, you know, where you get the Christian version of lots of different things, which usually meant that it was sanitized and nowhere near as good in terms of quality, artistic quality is whatever it was imitating. Um, you know, uh, and, and I, re I think the reason that that happened is because at least within the, the, the American evangelical and Protestant world, which is fundamentally Puritan in a lot of ways at its base, um, there was this rejection of a lot of Christian culture that had come before. And by this, you know, by by the point a few decades ago, when there was this attempt to start start creating Christian culture in these these sectors, um, the fact that that had been rejected a long time before had been essentially forgotten by that point, right? And so there's this desire to to make something new. And the problem is, is when you very self consciously attempt to make Christian culture, then and when you have a religious culture that has set aside saints' lives, that has set aside legends, that has set aside uh, liturgical celebrations of, of you know, events in the scriptures and events in church history, then what you tend to get is allegory. Then what you tend to get is apologetics, right? And I think there's certainly a place for allegory and for apologetics. I mean, Tolkien famously said he didn't like allegory, but he actually has a whole story that is nothing but allegory called Leaf by Nickel, which is very explicitly an allegory about dying in the afterlife. Um, uh, I, I think there's a place for that stuff, but Tolkien's not a preacher. He's fundamentally a, a poet and also a professor, which shines through a lot, right? You know, he's a professor of philology and of, of, of uh, Old English literature and that kind of thing. And so I, I think that what makes it good is that Tolkien is sort of moving around within this Christian world that he himself was steeped in uh, precisely by his very, very deep famili familiarity with medieval works and reading them in their primary sources, right? And so he, when he writes his works, he's in many ways is remixing a lot of the stuff that he already knows, and he's doing the same thing in a modern way that a lot of medieval Christian authors were doing, right? So they were often very self-consciously taking, including pagan stories, but certainly legends and stuff that had preceded them and putting them together, retelling them, remixing them and so forth. Um, this has gone on for as long as there's been Christianity. Uh, I think one of the most powerful examples of this is Norse mythology. Um, almost everything that we actually know about Norse mythology is written by Christians, writing centuries after Christianization. These men had never even met a, a, a Norse pagan, right? So all the things that we think we know about Thorn, Odin, and Loki, and Freya, and, and Fre you know, Frigg, and Hel, and all these kinds of things, our only sources for them are Christians talking about it. There's a few things that we have from other sources, like there's archaeological finds and some, some runes scratched on some stones, but not a lot. And so these are Christians taking these stories and then presenting them for their own purposes, right? So Tolkien is doing essentially the same kind of thing. And I think the fact that he's not trying to be a preacher is part of what makes it much more deeply Christian and much more compelling. There's a place for preaching, absolutely. I'm a preacher, right? I'm a preacher. Um, but but I think if you if you write a novel that's preaching, you're going to narrow your audience considerably. And preaching a sermon um, requires that the people in front of you have a certain investment in the message that you're giving, right? They they're they're ready to listen to a, a sermon being preached to them by, you know, a pastor, a priest, or somebody. Whereas someone reading a novel. That's not their orientation, and especially if they're not part of the flock, they don't want to hear a sermon. A sermon's not going to reach them at all. So I, I think that you know what what Tolkien is doing is very very profoundly Christian and is simply within the Christian tradition. And the reason why it's sort of shocking and disturbing for a lot of people is that they've they've uh, set aside Christian tradition, or maybe they're usually their generations before them did, and so they just never inherited it. This episode is sponsored by ChristianMinistryEDU.org. Chances are, if you watch my videos, you love theology, and maybe you've even thought of pursuing a degree in it. But it can be difficult knowing where to start, which degrees to look at, which schools, and how you're going to fit it into your busy schedule. That's where ChristianMinistryEDU.org comes in. It's a one-stop shop for degree and career guidance. 
and it is structured to help you find schools and career paths that match your spiritual mission. With program and career guides that span across Christian leadership and ministry positions, you'll be able to make an informed decision about your specific calling to serve. Learn more about how you can gain the tools to pursue your faith-based future today at christianministryedu.org. Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating way of coming about that. And I think his background as a professor there is important as well. I will make a shameless plug for a previous interview that if people enjoy this, I think they would enjoy, uh, titled The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, in which we talk about how his love for medieval literature shaped his thinking. And personally, I'm very drawn to the medieval period because I find the way that they engaged with culture so much more interesting in a lot of ways in the way that we do and probably part of that comes from me growing up in an evangelical background and being deprived of some of that sense of of rootedness right and that sense of kind of this bigger worldview that had been kind of so narrowed down into um, one way of engaging with culture which often looked like creating these parallel institutions which as you said are never as good are, are lower budget and just they, they hardly ever achieve what they're looking to do um, and they only ever reach a christian audience but i think what tolkien's doing is fascinating there and i think something that also comes out of that background that, that i carry that i believe you grew up in a bit as well is that sense of you were talking about you can you can preach you can write a novel but you're doing different things I think there's become this hierarchy, at least in the evangelical world, of for something to be meaningful, for something to be worthwhile, it should be saving souls, if you will. And I don't want to mock that because I think it comes from a good place, but it really limits like an artistic vision, right, for a novel, that a novel for it to be valuable has to preach or it has to be apologetics. But I think a Tolkien, and not necessarily doing either of those things, has achieved far more than kind of on-the-nose attempts at apologetics in a novel might ever have been able to achieve. And I think that kind of segues into this idea I want to get at of, and I mean, it's a difficult question to ask, right? But but why is it that you think so many people have been drawn to Tolkien? What is that? Has he tapped into certain human longings? Is it simply his master of the mastery of the English language? Like, what gives the Lord of the Rings this enduring draw to so many readers and has kind of ha developed this following that hasn't died and continues to grow and results in the most expensive TV show ever made? <laughs> yeah. You know, different people get into it in different ways. Um, there are people who just delight in his use of language. Um, I, I, I kind of feel bad on some level for those who are reading him in translation in other languages where it'll depend very much on the skill of the translator, but but something will be lost because he wrote them in English and it's it arises out of this very, very deep knowledge of English, right? Um, although I'm told there are some really good translations out there. But I think that what makes Tolkien so enduringly powerful and attractive to so many people is that he is in fact saving souls, right? Now he's not giving a kind of pitch Right. You know, would you like to accept Jesus into your heart? You know, do you know what happened to you if you died tonight? You know, all this kind of stuff that is the, the sort of stereotype of evangelical evangelism. Um, but I think he is saving souls because, at least from an Orthodox Christian point of view, the salvation of the soul is to be formed completely to be a one who does the works of our father in heaven. Right. So so being, you know, made image of God. Of God, our our vocation is to become like the angels who do this. This is this is who they are. This is how they were made, right? I mean, there's one place, uh, you know, in in, uh, in Luke chapter 20, Christ says that the sons of the resurrection are sons of God and equal to the angels, right? So so this is this is where we're headed, um, you know, as faithful Christians. And what Tolkien's works do is actually show this expansive creativity that uh, human beings are called to, right? Now, not everybody is called to be uh, a writer of stories or poetry or music or, you know, uh, an, an artisan or a craftsman or whatever, but we're all called to be creative in various kinds of ways. And it's, it's fascinating to see how much creativity Tolkien inspires in people, right? So not only do you get adaptations and stuff, which, you know, you can judge them as good or bad, faithful, unfaithful, whatever, but also, you know, Tolkien cosplaying is a massive thing. You know, there's conventions where people dress up uh, as his characters. There's there's Tolkien fan fiction. There's there's it just goes on and on and on, right? Now, I'm not saying that all of those expressions are good, but the thing that fires that engine 
is there is something about Tolkien's genius that invites you to say, why don't you come do this too? Why don't you come do this too? Like there's there's some kinds of genius where you watch and you go, man, I could never do that, but that sure is impressive, right? I feel that way, for instance, about Bach. You know, you listen to some Bach and you're like, wow, that's wow, that is so cool. You know, you know, but but that's that is definitely rocket science to me. Uh, but there's something about some kinds of geniuses, and Tolkien is one of these that says, why don't you come try this? And I mean, he he basically gave birth in a lot of ways to the modern uh, fantasy. Uh, genre, right? Now, that doesn't mean that everything written is comparable to him. I would say probably none of it ultimately is. But but nonetheless, there's a lot of people who grew up reading his stuff that said, I want to write this too. I want to participate in some way. I want to identify myself with this. And so there's this endless, endless uh, creativity that comes from it. And, um, and so that is part of how God made us to be, right? Like from Eden, that's that's built into the creation of humanity in Eden. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, cultivate the earth, be creative, be builders, right? And and Tolkien helps to, to create a very deep taste for this. And it is part of the salvation of the soul. It's not the only thing, but it is a big, big piece. You know, if someone becomes more creative, they are becoming more like God. I love that. And I think that's the type of genius. I mean, if if we should be so bold to dare to aspire to genius, which I think, why not, right? I, I think that's the kind of genius we would all want to be that inspires more of it. And I can definitely relate to that when you're talking about Bach. I, I play guitar and there's certain guitarists I listen to that make me want to never pick up a guitar again. <laughs> and there's others that make me go grab the guitar and say, this is something I want to... I, I want to participate in this, and this makes me want to to play more. And it's a fascinating distinction there that I'd love to explore more at some point. But I think that segues in to a question that I got from one of my patrons uh, in our Discord server. I have a Discord server just for patrons. Subtle plug if you want there. Um, Patreon.com slash gospel simplicity. But no, um, I let them know that I was interviewing you, and many of them are very excited. And I was asking what kind of things they wanted to hear from this. And... Per the request of one of my patrons, they said, just tee up the word co-creation and let Father Andrew run with it. And so <laughs> I only rarely take such suggestions um, verbatim, but co-creation. Yeah. Well, the first thing I'll say is actually the word you really want to tee up is sub-creation. Sub-creation. Um, and, and the distinction that Tolkien makes in, um, so he's got a, a, an essay called On Fairy Stories, and he talks about this in other places too. Um, which, you know, if, if listeners, if you haven't read on fairy stories and you're interested in Tolkien at all or just storytelling at all, Google up that essay and read it. It is so rewarding. You will want to go back to it again and again. Right. So Tolkien makes this distinction between creation and subcreation. So creation is to bring things into being out of nothing. Right. And and only God can do that. Only God can create ex nihilo. N no one else can. Right. So. But human beings can function in what he calls a sub-creative way, which is that we bring into being things that before were not, although we bring them into being out of things that already exist, right? So like, you know, like I can't make clay suddenly pop into being, but I can take a piece of clay and sculpt it into something. Actually, I can't because I'm a terrible sculptor. But, but I, I, I theoretically could learn that art, right? Um, so that's what sub-creation is, and it's sort of very basic theory. And there's one point in that essay where Tolkien says that we are made, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, we're made in the image of a maker, right? And so, so he, you know, what does it mean to be in the image of God? There's been a lot of reflection on this over many, many centuries. But the part that Tolkien is kind of honing in on is the idea that God does this, God is creative, and if we're going to be like him, then we're going to be creative too. Now, our creativity is much smaller, and it's derivative by definition, because that's just what we are, right? Uh, but but so, so on this basis, he actually says that creativity is in fact a holy act. I don't, I don't think that he uses that term holy to refer to it, I don't remember. But, but if he's saying that by, by being creative, we're being like God, that's what that means, right? And as an Orthodox Christian, I can really plug into that because we have this whole theology of participation in God's works making us more like God, right? This is part of what theosis is. 
you know, you participate in the works of your father that makes you more like your father, right? And it's interesting to me that when you look at evil, whether it's the, the sins that I commit or the evil we see in the world, one of the things that really characterizes it, it is so repetitive and banal. It's so deeply boring, right? I recently um, got the chance to travel in uh, my ancestral homeland of Lithuania. And one of the things that our guides were pointing out to us along the way was a lot of architecture. And uh, there's a lot of amazing architecture in Lithuania, especially in, in like the capital Vilnius and so forth. One of the things that they pointed out, they would say, oh, this building is from Soviet times. This is a Soviet building. And, and without exception, that building was the ugliest, most boring, most repetitive and irritating building in the whole landscape. Everything around it would be interesting and creative. And then there's this Soviet building. Right. And uh, that to me is one of the indications of how that whole ideology is just deeply evil is it's so uncreative. Right. Totalitarianism is boring. Um, it's it's nasty and evil and brutal, but it's also very, very boring. And and this is one of the things that Tolkien shows in his legendarium. Right. Is that uh, when evil is introduced into the world, it's it's loud and it's annoying and it's repetitive. Right. Uh, there is a. You know, and, and he depicts it in the beginning of his legendarium uh, in a, 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 a chapter of the Silmarillion, which is called the Ainulindale, which is about the creation of the world, which is done through music. And so evil comes into the world by virtue of one of the angels, uh, Melkor, beginning to sing his own thing. Right. And it's it's bad. It's bad music. It has this uh, it, it's it's. Um, you know, in unison, which is not necessarily bad in of itself, but it's this loud, overpowering, repetitive, boring, annoying unison, right? And that becomes the sort of template for evil for the rest of his whole legendarium, just as the beautiful harmony and surprising delight of the song that, that God begins to sing at the beginning and then the angels join in, uh, the Ainur, that that's the template for creation, right? So then when Melkor becomes Morgoth, which means the dark enemy, um, all he can kind of do is go and smash and destroy and break up all of the beautiful things that have been been done. Um, but one of the cool things that's also there in the Analindale is that uh, Iru Iluvatar, who is God in Tolkien's Legendarium, that he says essentially, okay, more, you know, Melkor, you're doing this evil stuff, but but and it's going to play out. It's going to play out. A lot of harm is going to be done. But ultimately, you will see that no matter what you sing, no matter what you do. And this phrase is, is used, uh, he shall prove but mine instrument. The idea being that even though this is Melkor exercising his free will to do evil, that God in his um, omnipotence, omniscience, and so forth, is going to incorporate even that darkness and destruction into the beauty of the song. And it's going to become more beautiful as a result, which, is, which is, sets up one of these big themes throughout the whole legendarium, which is what is the relationship between fate and free will? It's not actually ever solved. It's just sort of musically expressed, right? So, this is this is at least some some major elements of what subcreation means in in Tolkien's works, and uh, I think that that you know we can very much take this to heart. And uh, even where we see the banality of evil in our own lives, we can exercise what Scripture says about this: man meant it for evil, but God has turned it to good. And and Tolkien expresses that just in an incredibly delightful way. And um, I think it's good for us to imitate that as well. I love that. And I love that idea of the banality of evil because it is so contrary to what I think I grew up hearing and is often the felt sense for so many Christians, especially who maybe grow up in Christian environments where they have this sense of actually the, the fun, the originality, the, the, that which is interesting is outside the circle. And then I think for so many people, you, you find yourself there and you realize it's actually not and it's actually boring and it's banal. Um, and I think that tangible expression of that with the Soviet architecture was such an interesting way of getting at that. And I think something that the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church certainly capture better in a lot of ways, I think, than the Protestant Church has is that appreciation of beauty and seeing that as this intrinsic good or this transcendental, if you will, that 
the, the Christian faith should subcreate more beauty um, rather than kind of stripping the altars and having churches that are whitewashed and don't inspire more creation. I'm sure that could be a whole another conversation for another day there in and of itself. But where I think I want to segue here is you've been talking a lot about the Tolkien legendarium. And for maybe the casual reader, Tolkien's works extend from The Hobbit to through The Lord of the Rings, which we can talk about how many books that is, and the math gets a little strange there. Um, But there's so much more out there. And actually, I think this Amazon Prime series might inspire some people to go and realize that there is a lot more out there. And I remember I was just getting ready to read The Lord of the Rings for the first time, I think the first time that I interviewed you, um, or I had, I was somewhere in it. And I remember you telling me, read the appendices. If you, if you get anything from this, read the appendices. And so I want to talk a little bit just about maybe for that, that casual reader who maybe they watched the movies, maybe they read the books, but you know, like most books, they don't read the appendices. They don't read the notes. They just kind of read, you know, the, the interesting part. Maybe they even skip the preface or whatever, you know, you have in a book. What is, what are people missing? Or maybe put another way, what is there to find out in the broader Tolkien legendarium? I love that you brought up the Silmarillion there and that the cosmology there. Um, but, but what advice would you give to people? Where would you, where would you go? And uh, what is there to find? Yeah, there is a lot to find. Um, I, I recommend for people who are new to any of this literature to start with The Hobbit, um, although not everybody does. But I recommend everybody start with The Hobbit and then read The Lord of the Rings. And then look at the appendices at the end of The Lord of the Rings. That's very much part of the book. Um, there are a lot of stories in there. There's also a lot of stuff that makes for difficult reading. It's just like a big list of years and things that happened. Um, there's all kinds of linguistic information back there about how to pronounce things and alphabets and all this sort of stuff. And I don't blame people if those technical passages, they kind of skim through them a little bit. Um, but they should look at the parts, especially that have the stories. And the reason why it's set up this way, I'll, I'll give an example before I get into that. You know, Aragorn and Arwen, it's a really interesting story within Lord of the Rings, but you actually don't get most of their story within the body of the text, right? Now, if you watch the Peter Jackson films, you get more, you get some invented stuff from him uh, there, um, because Arwen is actually a really important character, but if you read simply the main body of the text of Lord of the Rings, she doesn't show up all that much at all, uh, in fact. But if you look at the appendices, you will see there's a, a passage called, I think it's the tale of Aragorn and Arwen. And it is their story, and it's really powerful and poignant, right? But it's told in a different mode than the Lord of the Rings. And if someone's going to pick one place to begin looking at this other material, that's the one I would start with, is the the story about Aragorn and Arwen. And you begin to see the kind of more mythic and legendary mode that Tolkien often tells stories in. And there's more there as well, for sure. then you can look at the Silmarillion, right? So the Silmarillion, some people have described the Silmarillion as Tolkien's Old Testament. Um, and it is, and it is. it functions in that way, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, it is told in a mythic mode, right? So if you're used to reading mythological material like, like Edith Hamilton's mythology or you know Norse mythology or any other kind of mythology, this will be familiar to you, this style of telling stories. And... Um, Tolkien very deliberately uses some 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 specifically King James version style uh, English in his um, in the Silmarillion. Like for instance, he uses the phrase "and it came to pass," and he answered and said unto them, right? This kind of stuff, which we're used to hearing in in, in the Bible, you know, particularly the King James version of the Bible, because um, he's trying to convey that this is this is where these stories are supposed to sort of reside in this kind of legendary mode, okay? Um, and, and the reason why Tolkien is telling these kinds of stories is, number one, he loves that kind of story himself. So he wants to try his hand at it. At one point, he said that he couldn't hardly come in contact with um, with a, a mythological story that he didn't want to write his own version of. Right. Um, and he did that several times. He actually directly wrote versions of some mythological stories. Like he wrote a lot of the tale of Kulervo from the Finnish Kalevala. He wrote his own version of um uh, parts of the Volsunga saga uh, with a book called the, the Legend of Sigurd and Gudrun. Um, you know, he did his own version of the, the Fall of Arthur, right? But but a lot of what's going on in um, in the Silmarillion and Lord of the Rings and in The Hobbit 
is him taking this stuff and telling his own versions of legends. So it's a different mode for sure. If you pick up the Silmarillion and try to read it, you're not going to find a novel. It is a different kind of book. But the good news is, is that each chapter is like three to seven pages long. So you sit down and read a chapter and just sort of absorb that part, right? And eventually you get a taste for it, and you'll find actually some of the best stories that Tolkien ever wrote. And probably to me the one that, that there's two I would pick out of the Silmarillion that are just um, transcendent in their, their impact. One is the tale of Turin Turambar which is tragic and dark and hard to read in a lot of ways, and yet very compelling. It's about a guy who's deeply flawed and yet is trying to do what's right and yet never really seems to be able to do it. And yet the forces and fates of the world are swirling around him, right? So that's really good. But I will warn everybody that it is a, is a dark story with a dark ending. And there's some definitely some adult elements in there. Um, the other one from the Silmarillion I recommend is is uh, is Baron and Luthien. Um, now again, I think you should read the Silmarillion in order. Don't just pick out these stories, although they actually do stand on their own fairly well. Baron and Luthien is the original story of the mortal man and the immortal elf getting together and what happens when that happens, right? And uh, there is essentially an invasion of of hell itself within Tolkien's Legendarium that happens in there. You know, so for instance, you've got the Greek myth of, of Orpheus and Eurydice, where Orpheus goes down into the underworld to bring his bride back out. Well, in Baron and Luthien, spoiler alert, Luthien enters into the underworld to bring Baron out of uh, imprisonment to the Dark Lord. And there's all kinds of other really cool stuff that happens in that story. It is it is a great adventure story. I think it, I, I, I hesitate to say this, but it would make a really great movie. Um, <laughs> It could make a great movie in the right hands. Um, so, uh, but, but even that, even that, the appendices and the Silmarillion, that is just the beginning <laughs> of a lot of what's out there. Like there's Unfinished Tales, which is literally, you know, the, the name tells you what it is. Um, and there's the whole history of Middle-earth series. And you can see multiple versions of these stories that Tolkien wrote at various points in his life and see beautiful things at different stages that don't necessarily end up in the finished version. And there are tales you're not going to read anywhere else and all that stuff. So there is a whole world of stuff to read. And his son, Christopher, has essentially invented Tolkien studies by editing and publishing massive amounts of works from his father after he died. So, yeah, you can spend your whole life reading this stuff. And it is it would be a life well worth spent. I love that. Yeah, and I, I, I loved the uh, the trepidation with which you recommended a potential movie there. I'm curious, just your take on, in general, is, is something lost when movies are made from the Tolkien works, even at their best? So not just in the instantiation we have, but even if we were just to imagine a movie, say, about that story, do you, do you feel there's something lost or do you feel the movies contribute something meaningful that maybe the books can't do by nature of their medium? Um, I, I'm going to say both. Um, there is definitely something lost. There's there's ways that you can, and, and Tolkien had this opinion himself, even while he sold the rights to his works to be made into films and TV and stuff. Uh, he, at one point he says he doesn't think uh, that Lord of the Rings can be dramatized. Right? He doesn't think it belongs on stage, doesn't think it belongs on film. Again, even while he sold the rights to that stuff. So he wasn't consistent on these things himself. There is something lost. Um, there's a lot of things lost. One is just the time that it takes to read a book like Lord of the Rings takes you on a journey that even, uh, what is it, 12 hours, 9, 12 hours of watching the Jackson films and their extended editions, they don't take you on that full journey. They just can't, right? Um, and when you get to the end and Sam says to his wife, well, I'm back, that means something after having read that whole book that just can't happen with with those films, right? Um, so that's one element of it. Also, there's a huge amount of detail that just cannot be described um, in in terms of you know what you can see in here, which is what movies have, right? And and internal things going on in characters. Although Tolkien is actually not a very sort of psychological writer, he doesn't tell you very often how people feel, um, which is part of what makes him a more medievalish author. He's a modern author, but he's a medievalish author. Um, you know, like the Bible rarely ever tells you how people feel. So that's definitely a pre-modern thing. We care in the modern era how people feel 
a lot more than 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 previous uh, centuries did. Um, and and I think also that um, you know for Tolkien a huge element of what he's doing is linguistic, and you can only really absorb that by looking at it on the page. There are some things that that are that, that you can get from films, right? And so this was to be something that I would say that a film can add or that a you know TV version can add is if they do their homework well and they learn how to pronounce the, the languages that Tolkien invented well, which again, in the appendices, it tells you exactly how to pronounce his languages, right? It's all there. Um, if they do that, then then hearing that, you can hear the beauty that Tolkien himself heard and occasionally recorded, right? There are recordings of him reading some of his uh, his works. Um, so, so that's something that they can add. They can also add visualization. Um, and I think that this is one of the things that the Peter Jackson films and it looks like the Amazon series are doing extremely well is this place looks in many ways like a lot of us imagine Middle Earth to look. Now, part of that, of course, is because for, for decades we had been seeing illustrations by especially John Howe and Alan Lee, who have, you know, especially the, the Jackson films, were doing design work for the Jackson films. So as a result, the pictures we've been seeing all our lives now were kind of in 3D, you know. Um, so, 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 you know, there is that sort of conditioning there. But I think that that's a, a, a significant piece that, that um, those media can add. So it's always a trade-off, and um, how well it's done will affect how good of a trade it is. Um, I, I think that uh, I'm, I'm generally in favor of adaptations. That doesn't mean I'm in favor of every single adaptation. Like the very first film version of The Hobbit was a short cartoon called Hobbit with an exclamation point at the end of it. That was like 11 or 12 minutes long. You can go find it on, on uh, YouTube. And it was absolutely terrible, but so bad it was good. So bad it was good. Um, uh, yeah, it, Bilbo comes back with a wife and uh, the dragon is named Slag. And there's all kinds of funny, weird stuff in that cartoon. Um, so not every, every adaptation is, is good. Um, and the Soviet era version of, of uh, The Lord of the Rings is... is is also especially terrible. You can watch that also on YouTube as well. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, there's there's good and bad, you know. I, I love Tolkien so much. If there's an adaptation that comes out, I'm gonna probably try it. I appreciate that perspective because I, I can sometimes be wary of people that take too much of a purist line on most things, really. But I, I think that's a very balanced way of looking at it, that you're going to lose things for sure. But you do gain things as well and they, have a merit in their own right even though they're not all going to be equal so i for what it's worth i appreciate that as you talked about seeing um visualizing it i i must confess that one great regret of my life is a few years ago i had the opportunity to go to new zealand and that's not the regret and i got to go on a tour through the lord of the rings uh like filming areas but i hadn't actually seen or read the books yet and so i'm seeing these incredible places but I was with some friends and I was just like, wow, this is really pretty. And now I go back and I'm like, how had I not seen it? Like I, I lost so much value from this. Um, but the visualization aspect is really, really great. So I have one last question I want to ask before we do a Lord of the Rings version of my final four questions. And that is, there's certainly enough from Tolkien to spend a lifetime on, as you mentioned. But you also did mention Tolkien's kind of source material in a way, the stories that he's adapting, the stories that he's reading as a professor, as a philologist, and as a lover of medieval literature. If you had to suggest someone to kind of go beyond Tolkien and to read some of that that source mythology, is there a certain place you would start? Probably Beowulf. Beowulf is, 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 is probably the single biggest influence on Tolkien's storytelling. Um, it is the greatest piece of Old English literature. There are some very good translations out there. There's some very bad translations out there. Um, I actually have next to me what I would regard as one of the best translations. I'm just going to hold it up to the camera right now. Um, this is uh, R.M. Liuzza, L-I-U-Z-Z-A. He did a translation of Beowulf. There's one version of it that has the Old English on one side and, and Modern English on the other, but you can get one without the Old English as well. Um, he has a very beautiful translation um, he tends to translate, he has a, a beautiful balance between literal translation and the beauty of the language that I think works really, really well. So that's the one that I would recommend. Ironically, I wouldn't recommend people start with Tolkien's translation of Beowulf, although it is very, very good. Um, 
and it's a prose translation, and that's the reason why I wouldn't suggest that people start with it. Um, and in fact, he never meant it for publication. It was basically a series of notes for his students. But it's Tolkien, so we need to publish it. Um, I, I love his translation, and his commentary is awesome, actually. So that's the one that I would start with. I'll just give a couple other honorable mentions. One, I would recommend people read the Volsunga Saga, which is a major um, Norse legend. And uh, there's stuff that works that works its way into Tolkien as well. And then uh, I would also recommend, and this is something that's little known actually still, but Tolkien super loved it. And that's a, a book called the Kalevala, which is uh, Finnish mythological material, particularly if you look at the, uh, the passages about Kulervo, which he was really interested in and wrote his own version of. So those are some of the, the sources that I would recommend you check out. He read a lot. He read a lot. But um, those are some of the big ones, especially. That's wonderful. And again, as if there's not enough Tolkien to read already, but I know that my audience, uh, it, it's full of, and I say this in the most loving way possible because I am one of them, is full of uh, theology, history, language, nerds, of which I associate um, and I'm glad to be a part of. Uh, so I'm, I'm sure they'll appreciate that. So on my channel, I usually do this segment called The Final Four, and I ask all my guests the same four questions, but I thought it'd be kind of fun to mix it up a little bit this time because this is Tolkien. We're doing things differently, and I've had you on the channel once already. So the first question I want to ask is favorite scene in Lord of the Rings. Wow. It's one I mentioned already, actually, and that's where Sam comes home after seeing Frodo off to the Grey Havens, and he sits down, and his wife puts their daughter Eleanor in his lap and he says well I'm back mm -hmm. and the reason that I love that scene is you've been on this big emotional journey throughout the whole legendarium and um, with Sam sitting down and receiving you know his daughter in his lap um, and saying I'm back there's all of this this mixed feeling of both sort of regret and uh, um, and satisfaction and you know resignation and and love for his family and and it's such a human human moment right and um it, it's kind of an unsatisfying ending in some ways right because it's like well what else is going to happen you know where is all this going to go and yet isn't this what human life really consistent in a lot of ways right um, so yeah, I think that's, I mean, I, there's a lot of scenes I could point to, but I think that's probably my, my favorite scene. It is such a humanizing scene. Uh, no, I mean, that's in no offense to hobbits, right? But no, uh, it's, it's a really beautiful scene. I, I love that one. I think that's a great choice. The second question is, and this might feel sacrilegious, I don't know. Is there something you would change in the books? <laughs> I mean, my, my first answer to that is going to be no, <laughs> nothing I would change. But I think if I had to change something, I would say um, I wish that Tolkien had written more of the story of the Second Age. Mm. So my change would be, you know, more, please. <laughs> I think that's a safe answer there. Okay, good. All right. Um, this is a question that I lifted from the best Lord of the Rings podcast I could find titled Amon Soul, link in the description. Uh, what character do you identify with most? Wow. Um, I, 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 think, I think if I had to pick one that I want to be like or, or see myself as being like, um, I actually would pick Tom Bombadil. Okay. Um, and, yeah. A lot of people don't pick him, I think, because he's a little weird for most people. Um, but I would pick Tom Bombadil because he lives this... Um, this life out in the woods where he's completely at home and he's not, he doesn't own everything, but he's, he's the master, right? And it's not that I you know, want to be a master, but, but he's the one, you know, he's, he's, this is his home. And so it all, everything responds to him. And, um, and one thing that's great about him is that in his world, creativity is what makes things happen, right? So singing makes things happen and singing accompanies everything. Right. There's 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 singing that we would say has a kind of magical effect that Tom Bombadil does. Like, for instance, he rescues the hobbits from Old Man Willow or rescues them from the Barrow White. But also he just sort of sings what he's doing along the way. And you might say, well, this is just sort of stupid, silly accompaniment, whatever. Um, but but really, I think it's actually integral to who he is. 
it's it's just music is is who he is and so uh there's a lot about tom bombadil that i i identify with in terms of who i am but then also a lot about who i would aspire to be i love that i remember finding that to be a really interesting portion of the books it they kind of go out on this journey and it in a way feels detached but it's also such a beautiful part of it and how it wraps into the whole world that tolkien's creating there so i found that to be a really interesting answer now the last question and it's, it's not meant to be a one-to-one, but um, I usually end all of my interviews with the question of if you had to, like, what is the gospel in a sentence? And not that that's a bad question. It's a question I love asking. But because we're doing Tolkien, we're going to do something a little different. What do you think Tolkien is trying to communicate in Lord of the Rings in a sentence or so? He said at one point, and I think this is one of his letters, that the overall arching themes, overarching themes of his work are death and the machine, hmm. right? So a lot of it is about how do you negotiate death? Um, how do you negotiate deathlessness, right? What does immortality mean, right? Th- this is huge and it's everywhere. And if you keep that in mind, actually, you can see this connecting thread in all of his work. Um, that to me is the most profound one. And then also the machine, right? This idea of, of a... Um, this inhuman, this unnatural, um, pervasive system that is destroying everything that's good, right? And and some of that I think comes from his experience in World War One, and also watching England change around him. Um, you know, certainly it was prescient with the rise of totalitarianism and and um, and of course our massive sort of systemization that we have in our own society now. Um, I think that he would find the internet very disturbing. Um, I think that he was a lot about the modern world that he he definitely did find disturbing when he was alive, and probably would find even more disturbing now. And and while I don't think that that's uh, a reason for us to say let's just burn it all down, um, I do think that his his sense of these things can help to inform us of how we should navigate it and how we should uh, try not to let the machine take over. Even if it's even if the machine is taking over our whole world, we can at least say not me, not my family, you know, not not the space that I'm actually responsible for. So that that's what I would say is overall he's trying to communicate is these two big themes of death and the machine. That's fantastic. I love that. And I could talk about this all day. But Father Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. This has truly been a privilege and a joy for me to get to have you on the channel once again. And I know my viewers are going to really enjoy it. I'll wrap up as I always do by saying until next time, be on the lookout for more videos. But far more importantly than that, go out and love God and love others because truly above all else, that will change the world. 